0: Thanks for listening to the latest Football Digest podcast available on all podcast platforms. Subscribe now through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Acast or wherever you get your podcasts from so you don't miss a single episode. Hello and welcome along to this week's Football Digest with myself, Ned Keating, and I'm joined by Connor Bromley as we run the rule over the latest from the summer transfer window. And Connor, thankfully for this show, but a, a little bit kind of Difference to usual. It seems the clubs are getting their business done fairly early in the window. We had Declan Rice uh, and, and West Ham and Arsenal coming quite close to the deal over him. Again, uh, the structure of said payments are are still being discussed as, as we record this. But in terms of a fee, it looks like it's been agreed £105 million. Arsenal already signing Kai Havertz. Liverpool having Alexis McAllister in the bag. Uh, and it looks like Manchester United are going to join the party now as well. Reports overnight uh, and the back page story of the Daily Mirror, Daily Express and Daily Star, uh, that Manchester United have come to an agreement with Chelsea for Mason Mount. Uh, looks like a, an initial fee of £60 million and then add-ons perhaps totalling upwards of, uh, of £5 million. Is this a good signing for Manchester United? Will Mason Mount be a good signing for Manchester United? I think it's a difficult one because... I
1: personally feel that Mason Mount is, I wouldn't say necessarily overrated, but I think he's not in that echelon of the world-class players. He's not in that that top 1%. He's maybe like a notch below that. That being said, he's what, 23, 24? I think he's 24 now. Man United are getting a player probably for the next 10 years who will be able to fit in their team. He does hit a need for them. He's an energetic midfielder. who's quite attack minded. So you'd look at their current midfielders, and I know there might be movement with Scott McTominay, but if he stays, you've got Scott McTominay, Fred, Casemiro, even Christian Eriksen isn't. He, he's a more attacking player, but he's not as energetic as Mason Mount. So I think he, he does hit a need for Manchester United. The fee, you know, sixty million pounds. I think that probably is a decent fee. You know, you're buying a player who's got Champions League experience, international experience, won the Champions League as well, of course, with Chelsea. So the fee is 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 a good one. Um, even though I have reservations over whether or not Mason Mount is genuinely world class. Um, so I think overall it, it's a it's probably a good deal for Man United, but I think it's also a good deal for Chelsea. This is probably one of them transfers that's a win for everyone. I think. Chelsea clearly don't value Mason Mount enough to give him the contract that he deserves. I think he signed a new deal just as he came back from loan at Derby. I think he maybe had one season at Chelsea after that and then signed his five-year contract that he's on now. He's one of the lowest earners of the regular starters at Chelsea. So they clearly felt that they didn't want to put him on that to £250,000 a week bracket. They clearly didn't value him enough to do that. Man United clearly do. I suspect he'll go in there and be on two hundred thousand pound a week plus at Old Trafford. So it's a win for everyone, and I think Mason Mount will do well. to Have a new setting. You know, you got to remember last year Chelsea were diabolical, and I think he will be very excited to not be in that environment anymore. Even if there is a new manager there and sort of new hope at Chelsea. So yeah,
0: I think I think it's a it's a good move all round for all parties. I suppose he'll be very excited to be in the Champions League as well. We're turning to that with Manchester United. Uh, it, when the move obviously gets over the line, we're talking as if there might be any hiccups, but we don't envisage any hiccups uh, being there with, with personal terms. We already agree. In terms of where Mason Mount fits in at Manchester United though, is he going to be in that central midfield position? Is he going to be a winger? I mean, we have seen him used in a number of positions for Chelsea. Uh, but he's getting to that stage in the career now where I suppose he has to nail down one position, one area on the pitch where he will excel and thrive and and I suppose moving to a new club allows him to kind of do that so that when he comes to Manchester United they'll have an idea of exactly where they want to use him.
1: Yeah, and I think you you look at Bruno Fernandes and he has been ran into the ground since he signed for Manchester United. So I think Mason Mount can help them there. He can help them being the number 10 but I also think Man United often... You know, you watch games and they sit there with two sitting midfielders when they're playing at home against one of the lower teams in the Premier League. And I think sometimes that really hurts them. I think if they were to add in Mason Mount as one of those, you know, not necessarily sitting, but next to a Fred or a Casemiro and they put him in there to be the legs. I think he he does make things interesting for them. He gives them lots of options. Uh, The fact that he can also fill in on the wings is a big plus as well because sometimes having a player that's more used to being settled on the wing can actually benefit you, particularly if you're wanting to have a a more, you know, structured 4-2-3-1 or 4-3-3. But I suspect Man United probably are going to be 4-2-3-1, 4-3-3. That seems to be logical. I think the signing would fit in to that. So I think he does fit in. You need quality players. You know, Man United are playing in the Champions League this year and Mason Mount while I don't think he is maybe at the level of a Bruno Fernandes, he's probably just the one notch below, he certainly adds very, very good depth to the team. And I think, you know, he's good to play 50 plus games in a season, which is important. You know, he's done that all throughout his career. So I think he fits
0: into that Man United squad. And I think it's, uh, it's, it's a good signing for Man United. A good signing for Manchester United. Um, for Chelsea, of course, they are losing uh, a player of, of good quality. And, and again, it's always sad when an academy graduate uh, does depart uh, and, you know, Chelsea fans loved him and they, and they had a special relationship. Of course, that, that is going to be sad for them. But a player who, as you said earlier on, you know, kind of a, a difference in how they value him in, how they value Mount and how Mount values himself in terms of the contract there. Equally as well, it looked like, that they probably weren't going to agree a new deal with him because of those differences in valuations between what the club had and what Mount himself had. So all things considered, £60 million for a player with a year left on his contract, is that a good deal for Chelsea despite the fact that they are losing, you know, A, an academy graduate and B, someone uh, who, who, you know, we know has got great talent, but given probably what would happen this time next year to get £60 million for him now is, is better than getting nothing in 12 months time.
1: Yeah, and this is why at it the start it's a win for all parties because Chelsea are in a position where they're in a rebuild, you know, and I think it's it's probably too simple to say that because they've got American owners who own American sports teams that it's like an American-style rebuild. But if you actually look at what they're doing, it, it looks to me like they're going very, very young. They're not letting any player, you know, they said that after the lost players last year on free transfers, Christensen and, and Rudiger, they're not going to let that happen anymore. And, you know, maybe this is a, a sign of the plan. At Chelsea last season went so disastrously. They made so many mistakes in the market that maybe they've, they've learned from those mistakes. And you look at the players they're linked with, they're all generally under the age of 23. You look at the squad in general, they actually have to quite a young team. Um, and I think the fact that they weren't willing to give Mason Mount the contract that I think he probably deserves as well, you know, I think he probably does deserve to earn up to £200,000 a week, you know, an English player, you've got that English player tax on top of that as well, you know, an academy product. You would think Chelsea would have went out and thought, right, we can build around this player for years to come. And I suppose that's the only confusing thing about this is Mason Mount probably would fit into that rebuild because he is of a good age, you know, he's got prime years ahead of him. But if Chelsea didn't want to pay him that level of money, um, £60 million is a good fee. I mean, we talked about this the other day with the Harry Kane transfer you know, he's got a year left on his deal. If you can get £80 million from him, does that not make more sense than just having him for a year and maybe finishing fifth or sixth? Because the other thing with Chelsea is, is is Mason Mount, the difference between them getting in the Champions League and not? I would say he probably isn't. I don't think he really affects their chances of getting in the top four that much because I think he is replaceable. And for them, it's not like he's a centre forward who scores 35 goals in a season like what probably Tottenham, I think, were Harry Kane. Mason Mount doesn't do that, so he's not going to be the, the difference between Champions League and Europa League or Conference League. So I think for Chelsea I can kind of see why they've done this. And as I said, it's it's just a win for all parties. I think everyone is benefiting from this deal and, and that is a rarity in the transfer market. Normally one team you're looking at go, you know, the sold cheap or the buying team bought high. We talked about this with Declan Rice the other day. Everyone sort of feels that Arsenal had paid a very, very high price for him. Whereas this feels like
0: everyone has, has got a good resolution. Sounds like you're suggesting this transfer move should be uh, sponsored by Hot Chocolates Classic, everyone's a winner. <laughs> um, in terms of Manchester United though, so this deal looks like it, it's getting close to conclusion. Is goalkeeping there the next priority for them? We're recording this Friday mornings, uh, June 30th, if we're recording this, um, and it's, you know... By all accounts, David De Gea's final day as a Manchester United player after the whole shenanigans over, he's got a contract, oh, we are going to pull it, and, and the diabolical treatment of him. Uh, looks like they'll, they will be in the market for a goalkeeper. So I suppose that's the next priority, is it, for Manchester United? There are other areas, of course, they're looking at, you know, they were previously linked with a few centre-halves, but given what they've got in goal at the minute, I suppose that that has to be where attention's turned to next to find David De Gea's replacement as soon as possible.
1: Yeah. And you look at that FA Cup final, you know, uh, earlier this month, actually, wasn't it? was it the right at the start of June. Um, David De Gea cost them that game, you know, and you look at the second goal. He should have saved that. And I think he is no longer, I'd always won awards. I think he even had the most clean sheets this past season, but I think that's more to do with Man United structure than him per se. He's just not a elite level goalkeeper anymore. You know he doesn't fit into the way Man United want to play. He's he's passing ability. His feet aren't the best. He can pull off spectacular saves, yes. You know he can do that. But in this day and age, a goalkeeper needs to be far more than pull off spectacular saves. But the other thing is, he makes some horrendous mistakes. You know he makes some really really bad errors, and that cost Man United points and games they absolutely need a world-class keeper. You look at Man City with Edison, you know, he has completely changed the game for them. When Pep Guardiola went in there and they tried Claudio Bravo, who was just a a terrible goalkeeper, it meant that they finished fourth because he didn't, he, he was so poor with his, his distribution was so poor, it affected the way that Pep was trying to play. And with Man United, I think David De Gea is the same. His distribution is so poor that it makes it so hard to build out the back and really, a goalkeeper needs to be an outfield player. He needs to be good enough to be an outfield player. He needs to be good enough to ping perfect balls to the fullbacks who are in tight areas. He needs to be able to play passes that set up attacking moves. And David De Gea just isn't capable of doing that. That's a difference in how football's changed, you know. In the last ten years, you see more now that goalkeepers have to be players. They have to, you know, they should be joining in the the player training. They're so integral at how teams line up And, I don't think there's any team who's had success in the last sort of five or ten years in Europe that hasn't had an excellent goalkeeper. You look at Courtois at Real Madrid, you know, brilliant. You know, he can do all the things you'd want. Alisson at Liverpool, I think he's probably got more errors in him than you would like, but ultimately, when he's on his day, there isn't really a better goalkeeper than him. And Man United don't have that. The problem is, is who, there isn't an obvious candidate. You know, I would say there isn't anyone that I look at and go, right, well, logically, Man United should go for them and that's the issue I I, I can't they've not even been heavily linked with anyone in the press because I, I don't think there is a logical option for them but it's something that they need to address because until they do that they will struggle to win the title you know you've got to have a top goalkeeper to win the Premier League and you look at Man United's history Peter Schmeichel was in the you know the early era of the Premier League rock solid struggled for years after that when he left, you know, they had like Mark Bosnich and Tim Howard, Roy Carroll, uh, Fabian is and all of them were good enough, they brought in van der Sar, van der Sar was a, you know, fantastic goalkeeper, top level goalkeeper and then De Gea came in and I think for a few years he was that but I don't think he is that anymore and, you know, Man United like need to find their next Peter Schmeichel or Edwin van der Sar if they want to be competing for the top honours.
0: I won't have any slander on this podcast against Tim Howard uh, because he owns the the club local to me where I live, Dagenham and Redbridge. So no slander against Tim Howard on this podcast. Um, But just a wider uh, transfer uh, point in general. Looking at this window, um, you know, we're not even into July yet. And we've got Arsenal close to wrapping up a deal for Declan Rice. We've got Manchester United closing in on Mason Mount. Liverpool already have Alexis McAllister in the bag. Chelsea have announced the signing of Christopher and Kunku. Manchester City have have got Kovacic through the door, and it looks like Josco Vardio won't be too far behind him. All these big clubs are all doing their business fairly early in this window. We're normally used to, to, you know, the last one probably would have been a saga, for example, that that would have dragged on for the whole summer. Likewise with Mason Mount as well, we thought it was going to go that way, and they seem to have come to an agreement fairly quickly after uh, bids were rejected. Is this a sign that these clubs are kind of now changing how they want to do this, that they realise the benefits of having? you know, these kind of big targets they've had early on in with their squads from the very start of pre-season. That they're not kind of playing catch-up if they end up joining halfway through July or, or later on into August. That if they have them there from the very start, then by the time the first Premier League game comes around, they're good to go. They're ready to go. They aren't having to play catch-up as, as the season's starting. Yeah, and I think that you look at
1: history, how often do deadline day signings, you know, that cost of fortune actually work? You know, the, the amount of times where teams scrambling late in the window to bring a player in is, you know, it, it just it streaks to me that a club isn't well run when that's happening. And I think right now you're seeing that these top-end clubs realise how important it is to have players in for pre-season. You know, it's worth paying the extra few million pounds just so they can get used to your system, so they can hit the ground running, so that when you get to the start of the season, you know, Declan Rice, for example, at Arsenal, will be fitting into their midfield and, you know, he's played there for, for four or five weeks by the time the end of preseason's coming and should be ready to hit the ground running. You buy a player on, you know, August 31st on deadline day, then you've got the international break straight afterwards, where they're probably away playing for, you know, that country. It's very difficult for them to come in and and hit the ground running. And I think football clubs, you know, should be trying to do that business. In the in in my head, if I was running the football club, you'd want 90% of your business done by the time you get in the middle of preseason, because you don't want players missing the preseason season And I think pre-season tours are, you know, speaking from working at a football club in the past, that's where everyone builds that bonds. That's where the relationships grow. That's where the manager gets to implement these systems properly and really get to work and get down with the players. You know, you don't often have a week full together football players and managers coaches that doesn't normally happen in the regular season so the pre-season a perfect chance for everyone to get to know each other so it makes a lot of sense for clubs to do business earlier and I think I think it helps as well when you know Man City for example see that Arsenal are making their business early that they'll go right we need to get our business done early as well because they're getting a head start on us and I think it can be a bit of a domino effect in that effect but I do think it's, it's important and it shows to me a sign of a, a well-run football club when they're getting their business in at this stage.
0: Before we go any further on this I just want to point you in the direction to any listeners uh, who might be interested and, and love their combat sports. Uh, we do have two brilliant new podcast series coming from our friend at Mirror Fighting uh, in the coming weeks. Uh, one looking at Conor McGregor and, and how he got to where he is and the rise behind Notorious, which I'm sure will be uh, brilliant and insightful. Uh, and another looking at the rise of influencer boxing as well. Again, I'm sure that will be uh, very insightful for anyone who's, who's interested in in that realm of, uh, of combat sports. Um, for now, though, Conor, we are going to switch our attentions to Liverpool. Uh, one of the other stories doing the rounds today in terms of transfer talk is their interest in uh, RB Leipzig Dominic Shiboshle. Um If there's any Hungarian speakers that listen to this as well, and I've got that horrifically wrong, I do apologise, and uh, and and by all means put me in the direction of how to say it properly. But looking at Liverpool's targets in in recent weeks, you know, Nicolò Barella from Inter Milan, Ryan Gravenberch from Bayern Munich, Kevin Zuram from Nice. They've already got Alexis McAllister through the door. The signs are very much pointing towards uh, Jurgen Klopp looking at this summer as the one in which he wants to rebuild and needs to rebuild his midfield.
1: Yeah, I think it it does, but I, I think it also is showing that Liverpool seemingly don't have the budgets of the other teams. You know, I, I think you look at what Arsenal are doing, you know, and the money that they're spending and continue to spend. Liverpool don't seem to have that kind of money. You know, that seems. To me, surprising in a lot of ways that they're looking at um, you know, look at Graven for example, now I think he's a good player, but he's went to Bayern Munich and he's really, really struggled. I think Bayern Munich paid 16 million in the reports where that they were just wanting to kind of recoup that feedback. So they're not looking at the high end, top end players. I mean, they were linked with Mason Mount for a period. He was linked with Liverpool and and seemingly they've decided to step aside. Um I think Shabosh He's a, a player that's interesting. He's came through the, the Red Bull factory, I suppose. And generally, as a general rule of thumb, that's a good thing. They generally produce very, very good players. Um, so maybe they've decided the scouts have decided that he's the way to go. But the concern for me with Liverpool is is they just don't seem to have the resources to compete with the other top end teams in the Premier League. And that I know they've had that. Sort of in the past, they've had to rely on selling. I mean, they sold Philip Coutinho for a mad fee and, and reinvested that quite well. And, and Jurgen Klopp, as a general rule, does quite well in the transfer market. But it does feel to me like they're having to rebuild this midfield um, on a budget and also um, in a clever way. The McAllister signing, I thought, was a really, really good bit of business because you know they're able to get that release clause in. But I do sort of worry that they weren't in the stakes on Bellingham, they weren't in for Declan Rice, they weren't in for Mason Mount, they weren't in for these these big name midfield targets that I think would have been huge for them in terms of rebuilding the midfield I and mean, we saw last season, particularly the first half of last season, how much they struggled in that area and how much they needed reinforcement so I, I'd say it's, it's if I was a Liverpool fan I'd be a little bit concerned looking at what everyone else is doing and looking at how slow they've been in the transfer market so far.
0: Just more on Shaboshlai now, um, 22, he's young, kind of fits that mould as well, where we've been speaking about Mason Mount being a Man United player for 10 years, Declan Rice likewise for Arsenal as well. Shaboshlai, if he you know doesn't press for Liverpool, can be around for that period as well. So it's in terms of, he's probably got the quality now as well, I'd say, to to, to kind of step up. He's had a couple of years in the Bundesliga and he's been linked with Premier League moves previously. But is he now of that age, that experience where this move will work out? It can be an immediate impact on that first team. Whereas obviously if you sign him when he's, you know, 19, 20, he's probably more of a project player, isn't he? In that sense that you're kind of, you know, giving him minutes, developing him. But whereas now he's coming a couple of years older, has that experience, as we say, from the Bundesliga. He's a little bit more mature in his play style and in his mentality and in, in how he approaches football matches.
1: Yeah. And I think that it makes sense, you know, to buy players who are in their early 20s over players that are in their, their teens. I think you look at last summer Liverpool bought in Fabio Carvalho. I know it was a, a lower transfer fee, but they brought him in in the hopes that he could contribute for them, and they, he didn't really struggle. And I think he's about to go out on loan right now. The only concern that I have with Shaboshla is, is to you look at where he played last season. He played most of his games on the right of midfield, and to me, that's not really the area that like I think they needed a, a proper central midfielder not somebody who is going to probably play anywhere in that forward wide three. Um, That's where he he seemed to play most last season. So that's a a little bit of a concern because I don't think that's the area they necessarily need to address. I think the area they need to address is that central midfield. You, You look at what they have at the minute in there and Jordan Henderson, great player, great leader, but probably not where he was two or three years ago. Uh, you look at they've lost Naby Keita they've lost Alex Oxy Chamberlain didn't really do that well anyway Harvey Elliott and Curtis Jones I look at them and I don't know if they've developed in the way that Liverpool would hope I, I don't think that they're at the level where they're going to be leading a, a title charge I don't think they're that good Fabinho had a really down year but I think he should bounce back and Thiago is getting a little bit older so I thought they needed to add a bit more legs directly into that sort of engine of the team and I don't know if this addresses that.
0: Uh, as ever we're always delighted to get in any listener comments uh, when we're recording and streaming live uh, and we do have one from uh, Richard Huttinson on YouTube um, and, it, and it kind of covers nicely the next point I had down on, on I'm the order anyway. Um, Richard saying that Liverpool need a sense back, a right back, right sided forward, box to box and central midfielder. So it's so a fairly extensive shocking list there for Liverpool and I suppose that's it isn't it? That you know, they're already looking at strengthening the midfield. Like we say, you know, they've got McAllister. There's other links to other players in, in addition to Shaboshlai in midfield, in, in various different kind of roles in midfield as well. So it looks like that's an area that they're trying to prioritise. But is there anywhere else that Liverpool need to to strengthen in this window? I'd say perhaps, probably, you know, that front three. I know, obviously, they're losing Roberto Firmino, but the options that they've got there, you know, Jota, Diaz, Gakpo, Salah, uh, Darwin Nunez as well, I'd say that's probably fairly... Comfortable and stable, but in terms of the rest of that squad, are kind of and maybe goalkeeper as well. But there are other areas that even if it's not first teams that they need, that they, they perhaps need a little bit more strength in net.
1: Yeah, but this is this comes back to the the budget thing for earlier doesn't it? Liverpool don't seem to have the money to add what what's Richard wanting one, two, three, four, five players. You know, and, and I presume that's not including McAllister they've signed. So six players overall in the summer. You know, can Liverpool really afford to buy? six players that are going to affect their first team. That's a big ask. You know, you're talking six, fifty million players, basically, minimum. And they don't have that, that level of resource. I think the problem is, is the club have failed to invest properly over the previous sort of, maybe three or four transfer windows. And last season showed that the team needed reinvestment. And that's starting from a point where the need to really change the team right now and it's going to cost them a lot of money to do that it's probably going to take in two or three years to get the team rebuilt properly in the way that Jurgen Klopp wants so I think they've been a victim of not reinvesting properly even the transfers that they've made previously um, you know I look at Cody Gakpo coming in in January he's a good player but did they need to sign him for forty million pounds? I, I don't know if they necessarily did. I, I didn't think that addressed the need. Would that forty million pounds not have been better waiting for the summer to get invested into the the engine of the team? Which I think, as Richards pointed out, you know, he wants a box to box and central midfielders, you know, so more than one. You know, Liverpool need to address that area, and all their resources for me needs to go into that that middle of the team because that's what desperately need improved they've got Darwin Nunes who I suspect they will see as their striker for the next you know six seven years fine we know they've got good wingers we know that it's center back I think you know Van Dyke, Joel Matty, Kanate, decent enough options there I don't think it, it's something that needs desperately improved and even at the fullback positions Robertson and Trent I like them both and I think that you know Liverpool will be happy going with them and goalkeeper we know it's pretty solid. It was just that middle of the team that that desperately needs work and I would have put all my resources, all my chips into buying probably three
0: central midfielders that would really change the dynamic of this team. Just before we go today, uh, some quick fire transfer fodder, I think is what we'll call this little section. Um, the back page of the Express, we won't spend too much time on, on this line, I suppose, because, uh, you know, Lesford being relegated, Port Guys, um, I'm, I'm sure they'll be looking to move players onto so this. Might be a deal that does interest them. But slightly interestingly, uh, the Express reporting that Roma and Jose Mourinho are interested in uh, Kalechi and Nacho uh, Pats and Patson uh Two strikers on the side that kind of really struggled for goals last season, but it'd be interesting to see how they do in Serie a. Uh, I suppose it'd be one if, rather than both of them going out there. Um, but for, for one that we will touch on a little bit more in depth just briefly though uh, Aston Villa closing in on the deal for Pau Torres as being reported by our friends at the Birmingham Mail uh, very close to the ground up there and a very good signing for Aston Villa I must say um, he's obviously someone that knows uh, Unai Emery very well and Emery knows him very well having worked together at Villarreal um, but a player that, that even in this window had been linked uh, somewhat tentatively with Bayern Munich I think they were more interested in the, um, in in Napoli defender Kim um, but Someone that had been linked with Manchester United past, Tottenham in the past. So very much a coup, I think, for Aston Villa getting a, a player like Pau Torres and the calibre that he has in their team for next season. Yeah, I think, you know, the fee
1: what, was £32 million? I think it was something like that.
0: So it's a decent fee.
1: It shows the pull of the manager. I've been so impressed with Emery since he's came in there. He's, he hit the ground running and I think he's just a good fit. You know, you get certain managers, I think Eddie Howe's like that at Newcastle where for whatever reason, they just fit in with that club. And I think Emory and Aston Villa are just a match made in heaven. And this transfer just shows, you know, where Aston Villa are as a football club. You know, they're, they're an exciting club. They're a club on the up. They're a club that's spending money. And, you know, so it sort of feels like the sky's the limit in a lot of ways for them. And I know they've got European football next year, which will have a strain on their squad, but they've got a manager who knows how to compete on many fronts and to me this is this is a really really big move and it, it's a real statement of intent from Aston Villa and I'm really excited to see them next season um see what you know Unai Emery does with a full season a full pre-season behind them because I think they could be a real competitor for top 4 and I think as well they're going to try and win competitions because that's what Unai Emery is good at and that's really really exciting you know if you're an Aston Villa fan I don't nor if there's a more exciting project in in the Premier League the
0: minute than theirs. Yeah, a is a bit of a math when it comes to European competitions in particular. So uh, I'm not saying Aston Villa fans should be booking their flights to Athens for the Europa Conference League final next year. But, you know, I would be monitoring prices at this point already just to see uh, if it starts getting higher and, and you can get it on the cheap. I know a few West Ham fans had booked their trips to Prague back in October. They were that confident that they'd get there. Um but just, just finally before we go, um, just a quick little midfield roundup by the look of it. Um, Chelsea being linked with uh, heavily with Moyes Caicedo. Looks like that they're looking at him to, um, you know, someone suggested replace Mason Mount, but I think they're very much different midfielders in terms of what they bring. So I don't think it's necessarily a replacement, even if it is uh, a central midfielder. Uh, Gabby Vega from Celta Vigo, uh, someone that Liverpool have been linked with, someone that Magic City have been linked with, and now someone that Chelsea have been linked with, because of course Chelsea. Uh, yeah, they're trying to build a team of eleven midfielders. I think, by the by the sounds of it, you know, with what they've got already, and I know they've lost Mason Mount and Golo Kanté and others, um, but but it looks like they're they're adding plenty more midfielders to their squad this window. Uh, and our friends at are uh reporting on Pierre Emil Højbjerg uh, and the fact that his Spurs day could be coming to a close. It looks like Atletico Madrid may well be interested in him. Connor, is there anything from those three that that you know, catches your eye in terms of Criseido, Gabriel Vega and and Bjork. Casedo heavily linked in January,
1: wasn't he, with a move? It feels to me like logical that he'll he'll get that move this season. I think um the Zerbi had said to him when I think he signed a new contract didn't he? But he said that he could move on if the if the right offer came in. So I'd I wouldn't be shocked if he moved on. I feel like Liverpool would be a more logical option for for him, but um Chelsea, you know, they like buying players so why not? Uh, Vega, thirty-five million, I think roughly was the was the price. So twenty-one year old he would fit the remit of top-end teams in the Premier League. And if, if it's Chelsea, quietly building a very young team, aren't they? You know that's that's seemingly how they're wanting to go. In I touched on the American style rebuild, but that feels to me like what they're doing: investing in young players who will be there to help them for the next ten years. Um, heavy investment now and probably less investment as the air goes on so it probably makes a little bit of sense and Hoiberg I mean you know more about him than me being a Spurs fan um, but I think he's done quite well at Spurs you know, I'm surprised Spurs are, are wanting to move him on so I'd be surprised if, if he moved on but maybe maybe the new boss at Spurs
0: you know doesn't fancy him I don't know I would have kept him though Skyler so, thank you so much for joining us uh, this morning uh, for this podcast really appreciate your time as always Uh, As I mentioned earlier on, of course, if you're a combat sports fan listening to this, please look out for uh, some new podcast series coming from our friends at Mirror Fighting in the coming weeks. Uh, If you love your football, though, of course, you can stay up to date with all the latest from the transfer market and beyond across the Daily Mirror, Daily Star and Daily Express websites. But for now, it's goodbye.